All right, so today we're going to take a break from our regular study of the feasts. And the reason we're going to take that break is because I thought that Christy and Katie were going to be teaching the children, but we're going to hold off on that so the kids can have a movie night tonight. I didn't know that, though, coming here. So that means that I was intending on having a special topic lesson instead of having a feast lesson. So we'll have the feast lesson on Thursday, and we're going to have the special topic today. So, so it's, fault. it's not Christy's fault. It was just, you know, things happen, right? It wasn't my wife's fault either. You know, things just happen. But uh, we're going to talk about Simon Magus. This was one of those topics that I threw out there last time we met, and y'all didn't really want to listen to it. Simon the Sorcerer. Simon the Sorcerer. I've always heard Simon Magus. I don't know why. I mean, it, it literally, it's, Magus means sorcerer, and that's what it is in Greek, but I've always heard it Simon Magus. So if you don't know what Simon Magus means, well, now you do. But anyways, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and if you hear my little boy, Jamie, um, he is trying to co-teach with me, so if you're in Babylon... Uh, just say an amen because we're sure he's saying things that are doctrinally sound and edifying. Uh, but in Acts chapter 8, we're going to talk about Simon the Sorcerer because this is one of those stories that has always fascinated me. And I've always, quite frankly, been bothered concerning how theologians interpreted this story. And there are some theologians out there who I think they definitely got it right, and I'm going to share with you their view, but it's a minority view. Among Baptists, people who believe in salvation by grace through faith, it still seems to be that the majority of people don't think that Simon was really saved, which is shocking to me, given the way things are stated in Acts. So in Acts chapter 8, uh, verse number 9 Beginning there, it says, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. And Michael Heiser, before we go on, Michael Heiser has argued that this expression, some great one, um, it should be translated or as, sorry, not translated, but it, it refers to verse 10 where it says, This man is the great power of God, that that expression great power of God refers to the idea of the angel of the Lord in Old Testament theology. So this is the visible manifestation of God. So in Samaria, the people were worshiping this guy because they believed that he was essentially God manifested. And that's what it means, great power of God. And he was apparently doing things that were what we would call false miracles. I mean, false being, yeah, it's a cult power. So definitely not of God, but still supernatural, demonic. And so that's what he was involved in. But it says in verse 10, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, and in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And by the way, continued has been translated as continued steadfastly. So he was with Philip wherever he went. Just he, stayed close to Philip constantly. Yes, he was constantly his companion. 
and he wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, before we go on any further, we need to stop right there and talk about this expression, to believe. Because it says that Simon himself believed also, and he was baptized. Now, there's no hint that this is Luke saying, well, Simon claimed to believe, and he made a show of believing, and so was baptized. No, he's making a historical statement with authority saying, Simon believed also. The word also is in the Greek there just as much as in the English. It means that he believed just as the other people believed. Now, what's interesting is, in this story, no one questions that the people of Samaria actually believed and that their baptism was a real expression of their real faith. Because later on, when the apostles show up and lay hands on them, they all receive the Holy Spirit. So no one ever questions their salvation. But for some reason, we question Simon's. And it's because Peter had some stern things to say to him. So we need to interpret that. But first, before we go any further, we need to at least say, honestly, it is stating here, Luke is saying here, Simon believed just as much as the other people did. There's no difference made here in the text between the two. And some would say, well, he believed because he saw the signs. Well, actually, the text is very careful to say that he believed and he continued with Philip and he wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So the way it's stated is he believed first and he followed Philip and he wondered as he followed Philip at all the miracles that were being done. That doesn't rule out that miracles were done earlier, that Philip did those things and Simon saw them. I assume that he did. But there's nothing in the text here to indicate that Simon just believed because he was awed by power and there was nothing more to it. And in any event, aren't the signs being given through the apostles meant to lead people to faith? That's exactly what they're for. And so to say, oh, it was just a faith in signs is quite ridiculous because that's the whole point of a sign is to lead someone to faith. John the whole gospel revolves around the eight signs that Jesus performed. And it says at the very end, these things were done so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so believing may have everlasting life. So, I mean, it's clearly stated that the signs were with the intended purpose of awing people. They were really meant to give them pause and to have them think about the message. And, of course, Simon, he couldn't argue with the message because he couldn't argue with the signs. He saw that these things were exceptional and different. Now, exactly how he interpreted those signs in comparison to the ones that he had performed, the sorceries that he had done. Well, assuming that the sorcery that he performed was real sorcery and it was legit, and that is something questioned by some commentators. They might think this is a sleight of hand, an illusionist. For that, how are you doing the sleight of hand? Yeah, so some people think that that maybe is what he did. And so when he saw Philip perform these miracles, he's thinking that's not fake. Like, I'm an expert at this business, and this is real. That's possible, but it's also possible that, like in the book of Revelation, you're going to have false signs and wonders from a demonic origin, and then you're going to have those two witnesses that are performing signs from God. And so you have a contest of the gods, the true God and the false gods. And, of course, in the case of those two witnesses, anybody that tries to harm them fails, is consumed by fire from their mouth. So I also think it's very very possible here. And this is my opinion about it. Um, because sorcery is mentioned elsewhere in scripture as being a legitimate thing that's demonic. So I'm not going to assume that this is just a trick unless that's brought out clearly in the text. Um, so I assume this was demonic. And what convinced Simon is he recognized in these signs real power that dwarfed the power that he had. Just like those magicians in the book of Exodus. They were clearly doing stuff that was demonic. 
But the power that God manifested through Moses and Aaron was so much greater than their own that they had to say, this is the finger of God. I think Simon was at that same point. This is the finger of God. I ought to listen to what this guy Philip says. Well, what was Philip preaching? He was preaching the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. Was this something different than what the other apostles have been preaching? No, it's the same thing. Repent and believe and be baptized. I mean, he's teaching them the gospel, how to get saved. There's no name under heaven whereby a man can be saved except through Jesus Christ. So that's what he's preaching. And Simon heard that message and because of the signs believed it. So we have no reason to believe that Simon wasn't genuine here. But let's look at what happens next. So in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And this is parenthetical here. It says in verse 16, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, we have to ask the question, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit immediately? Because we don't see any indication that the Holy Spirit came later earlier on at Pentecost. It doesn't mention that the Holy Spirit came later. I assume that they received the Holy Spirit the moment they believed, and then they afterwards got baptized. It is possible that they may have had the hands of the apostles laid on them, and they received the Holy Spirit that way. Um, this is the first time the Holy Spirit is being poured out. This is just as the sun came down and descended, he's ascended back and he's sending the Holy Spirit down. So this is the beginning of the church age. We shouldn't expect that as the Holy Spirit's been poured out for the first time that it's necessarily going to be the same as it is today. So it could be that the laying on of the apostles' hands was a sign that these men have been given special authority from God. You can trust everything they have to say, all their teaching, all the doctrine that comes from their mouth. Believe that. And by the laying on of hands and them receiving the Holy Spirit, as testified in the signs, would have been a clear proof that, oh, these are the guys we need to listen to. Not any other false prophets. We need to listen to them. Um, so it would put a seal of authenticity on the apostles' preaching. So that, to me, makes sense. But what about the Samaritans? Well, I think that it was important for the apostles to lay hands on them because the apostles were Jewish, and these were Samaritans. And so most commentators point this out, and I agree with them here. And the idea is there needs to be a unity between the Jews and the Samaritans. We're, we're all part of the church, the body of Christ, but the Samaritans for the longest time had had this antagonism towards the Jews and vice versa. Right. And Jesus does say in John chapter 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he says salvation is of the Jews. So they do have it right because she was saying, well, the Jews, you know, they say we should worship in Jerusalem and, and, and we say we should worship on our mountain. That was Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And Jesus is like, well, salvation is of the Jews, and that's the temple. Like, that's that's God's house of worship. There is a day coming where we'll worship in spirit and truth, and we won't need a, a physical building. But salvation is of the Jews, so they do have that right. So I think that the Samaritans needed to realize that, yes, the Jewish people are God's chosen people, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and that they need to accept the authority of the apostles as Jews. And this would have been a healing ministry too. I mean, this rift between these two people, Samaritan and Jew, to be brought together in the body of Christ. I think that, you know, how could God not perform some amazing sign to testify to what was happening? So they received the Holy Ghost only when hands were laid on them. Were they saved beforehand? They were justified the moment they believed. So in my mind, when they got saved, when they first believed, this would have been comparable to people in the Old Testament 
whenever they looked in faith to the promised Messiah, they were justified even though they had not received the Holy Spirit. So if they would have died at this point, I mean, they were justified. They would not be held accountable for their sin. They've been forgiven. But the Holy Spirit was to come later. And I've always wondered, like, well, what would happen if one of them died, like, in that gap of days, you know? Like, are they going to go to Abraham's bosom? I mean, Abraham's bosom's already been emptied out. And that's a huge what-if scenario because God knew that wasn't going to happen, okay? He, he knows that none of these people that just got baptized are going to pass away before the apostles get there and lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So that's just really a question that's it's no, needless. Baptized, but they believed. Yes, I mean, right. they certainly believed. Yes. And they were baptized. And if, what, if, if we want to talk about what-ifs, what if there was an old man who got baptized and before Peter and John got there, he passed away? Well, I assume that he would have received the Holy Spirit upon death and he would have gone to heaven. Yes. That, that's what I would say. But that's one of those theological intricacies that we really don't need to deal with. But let's keep reading. It says in verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, who's they? All of those people. It apparently is everybody. And why wouldn't we include Simon in this? Because he was part of that same group. Now, some commentators will adamantly say he did not receive the Holy Spirit. But where did they get that from? Right. Let's keep reading. I think they are. So let's read the next two verses. In verse 18, when Simon saw... Now, when did he see? He saw, he saw when they did it. So I assume that this happened to him too. Okay? But it says, when he saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Now, in my mind... Simon, he knows better. He is ignorant somewhat. I mean, he's a new Christian, but he does have these bad habits that he's still not completely free from, right? And in the, back in the day, it's possible that people would have given him money to perform certain false miracles. So he's thinking or, that's... Or he learned from other people. Or he learned from other people. He money to learn how to do exactly. Yeah, he doesn't say he's going to charge for it. He just says, give me some money so I can do what you're doing. He offered them money. Yes, yeah, he offered them money. He wants to pay them so he can receive what? It doesn't say that he offered them money for the Holy Spirit. I am amazed no. at how many theologians get this wrong. I, I, every time I see it, I cringe because I'm thinking, these guys have their PhDs. But it doesn't say anywhere that he offered them money for the Holy Ghost. Right. He saw that they had the ability to transmit, transmit the Holy Spirit. And he wanted that power. He didn't want the Holy Spirit. He wanted the ability to confer the Holy Spirit. Presumably he already had the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly right. There's a guy named James Inglis, and I didn't know anything about this guy until I read this article on faith alone. But in 1865, he was a Baptist from Scotland that came over here to the States. And um, I think that he lived in New York. But he wrote this magazine. And, and back then, a lot of preachers would publish their articles anonymously because they didn't want credit for him which I think is quite humble. But anyways, in one of these articles, it's attributed to him because it most likely was, sure. yeah, we don't know for sure, but he was the guy who wrote the magazine. And so most of those articles were written by him. But in this article, he believes that Simon did in fact receive the Holy Ghost. He says it would be quite nonsensical for Simon to ask for something above and beyond the normal experience if he didn't even have the normal experience. Right. So it seems like, you know, Simon gets the Holy Spirit, and when it says when, in the Greek it's having seen. We don't know how long there was between the having seen 
that the apostles had this authority and him requesting it. But I assume he probably pulled them aside. I doubt that he just raised his hand in the middle of everybody and said, hey, I want to give you money to get this power. That seems a little shameful, even for a person who was in the occult and came from a sinful background. I think that he probably brought them over to the side and said, hey, um, I see that you have the ability to you know, give the Holy Spirit to people. Um, I have lots of money. I'm a very rich man. And I, I would be more than happy to give you a, a sizable sum so that way I could have this ability too. Right. So I can imagine him pulling Peter aside later on. Especially when you consider the fact that he continued steadfastly with Philip. Mm -hmm. It's like, so he's got an in already with, yeah. with, with Peter and, and, um, and John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you so can imagine a fellowship meal. It's going to be like, hey, yeah, they're going to be like sitting down and saying, so, mm -hmm. I, I want to you know, have you, that conversation. Can I give you some money can for I, that? Exactly. So yeah. a lot of people assume that it was like when Peter was laying hands and John too, when they were laying hands on people, Peter comes to, to Simon. He says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. I want the ability to confer the Holy Ghost right. and I got money for that. Right. That's a possible scenario. But I don't think so. I personally don't think so. I think that because it says that they, the whole group, which had been baptized, received the Holy Ghost, right. Simon probably did too. Also, you're not going to walk straight up to someone you've barely met, who you recognize as having authority, and the first thing you say to them is, here's hey, here's some cash. I want what you have. You would probably ingratiate yourself. I can imagine weasel your way in. Right to try to figure out how I can get this authority. So he wanted the authority, not necessarily the Holy Ghost. But look at what Peter says to him in verse number 20. But Peter said with him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Now the gift of God, a lot of people think the gift of God refers to the Holy Ghost. I don't think so. I think the gift of God refers to the, the apostolic office. The apostles were given this authority. And that's what he wants, right? He wants the power. He wants the authority. And that power and authority was conferred upon the apostles. It was a gift that God gave to them. And you can't buy the gift of God. He chose the apostles by grace. They didn't brag about it. They were thankful and they were faithful. And everybody's a member of the body and they have their own position. So you can't purchase the gift of God. But he says that thy money perish with thee. And that word perish, man, if you go on the forums and I like to see what people think. So I'll be looking on these forums online and everybody's like the word perish always refers to hell. Well, no, it doesn't. If you look in first Corinthians, when talking about um, eating foods offered to idols, Paul talks about not causing your brother to stumble. And he says that if you do that, you can cause your brother to perish. Now what he's talking about is if you cause your brother to stumble back into idolatry, that could result in them, them wandering away from the church and breaking fellowship with God and thus experiencing divine discipline. And that discipline may very well end up in their being, you know, taken out of this world by God. We know that Ananias and Sapphira had already physically perished whenever they lied to the Holy Spirit. And their sin was also connected with money. Right. So to, to me, if you've already read the story in chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira... You should be familiar with this sort of discipline. Uh, Peter says, let's keep reading. He says in verse 21, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. That means you don't have your request. Yeah, you, you've asked for something. You don't have a right to it. 
And so you don't, you don't have what you want for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Okay. He doesn't say you're in your sin in the sense that you haven't been forgiven. He doesn't say you're not born again. He's not really saying get saved. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, repent therefore of this thy wickedness. So he's got some sin that he needs to turn away from and pray God. If perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So this desire that you have, you know, it's wrong and pray that God will forgive you of what you've just said. Like this right. presumptuous sin of yours, ask God for forgiveness. And he's talking about this, thy wickedness. So there's a particular thing that you need to repent of. He doesn't say repent of all of your sins, yeah. repent of your unbelief. He's saying repent of this particular thing that's getting you in trouble. Yeah, he doesn't, he's not talking to him as if he's an unbeliever. At least I don't, I don't think it's that. He says, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You have a habit, a sinful habit that you are still enslaved by. And guys, when you get saved, you don't come out of all your sinful habits. Okay. So he's saying you're stuck in this sinful habit, repent of it. And if you don't, then you will perish. Okay. If you're putting your money first instead of God first, that money is going to perish. It's not going to have any lasting value and it's going to perish with you. Your life can be cut short by sin. I mean, this is something scripture teaches a million times. The Old Testament gives us plenty of examples of the Israelites sinning against God and what happened. A lot of them were put to death for it. And in the New Testament, we have the same warning. Now, of course, we're in the age of grace. And so it took a while before those Corinthians actually, you know, fell ill and then died from their illness. God was very patient with them. But the idea is God's not going to be mocked. And what you reap, or sorry, what you sow, you will reap. And if you're sowing to the flesh, if you're investing in your sin, because we still have a sin nature, you know, Peter, who was speaking here, had one too. But he has reached a, a point in his sanctification where he's, he's mastered that, okay? He, he is not allowing his flesh to dictate his life. He's allowing the Holy Spirit to dictate his life. While Simon, on the other hand, though he's believed, though he's been baptized, though I think he also received the Holy Spirit, he hasn't mastered his flesh yet. He's a baby Christian who's got some things that he's still struggling with. And so... Do you think Peter's response could have been that harsh because he was Peter? I, it could be, but I think that the reason God was so harsh at this point is because he didn't want people to take his grace for granted. I've always wondered about Ananias and Sapphira. And they they clearly had the Holy Ghost. And, I, and it's interesting that most commentators that think Simon wasn't saved, they'll, they'll admit, maybe even begrudgingly, the Ananias and Sapphira were, which I think it's, that's kind of interesting because what he said to them was just as harsh. And I mean, they died and Simon didn't. <laughs> so, you know, if we're going to question someone's salvation, I think it's ironic that they wouldn't question theirs. I don't think you should, but I just think that's interesting. But Ananias and Sapphira, um, they were struck down and God didn't give them any more chances. So why did he do that? Why was he so harsh? Well, not only was it a very sinful and obviously God's anger was against them because of that. I, I think it was because they have just become a church. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out. I mean, the grace of God is on display in a way it's never been before in history. And you already have people like Ananias and Sapphira and Simon abusing that grace. Yeah. And so I think that what God is doing up front is saying, no, no. Yeah. Okay. The grace that I'm giving you is not something to be abused. And though I am forgiven you of all your sins and you're brought into the family and this is all for free, I hold my children to a standard. And if you're not living according to that standard, 
then there will be consequences. There, the, the other side of it is the fact that Ananias and Sapphira committed, right? They already did the deal. They, they went through with it. Simon. And they denied it. And denied it. Simon yeah. asked the question. Yes. Right? He yes. Unable to follow through, and he doesn't follow through with it mm-hmm. because he he's rebuked. Yeah, right. and immediately as, as we come to see, he he does. He seems to repent. Yes, it really it yeah. Let's read that. I mean, he says in verse number twenty four, Simon said, "Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me." And a lot of people will say, "Oh, he says, pray ye to the Lord." And I'm thinking, come on, guys, right. these are the apostles he's standing just, as the representative of Christ. I mean, who just conferred the Holy Spirit upon them? He's right. kind of acknowledging their authority there. He is, and they prayed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, you think about it. It says that Peter and John prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. They prayed on their behalf that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon is naturally saying, I ask you to pray on my behalf that none of this will happen to me. He seems contrite. So we don't know what happens next. There's a lot of historical um, statements about Simon. This guy is probably the most famous heretic of the early church. And there's this idea that he founded a whole movement and that he is the founder of Gnosticism and yada, yada. Do we have any sources that are 100% reliable that authenticate this idea? No, the sources do come probably about a hundred years after Acts was written. So it's possible that if Simon, let's let's assume Simon does eventually fall into sin, maybe he repents here, okay? But then he goes back to those bad habits. It can happen, okay? Let's say he goes back to those habits. Let's say he grieves the spirit and he does start teaching heresy. A lot of people would say, oh, well, that just proves our point. He really wasn't saved. But there are examples in Paul's letters of people that were teaching heresy and Paul disciplined them as members of the body. You have uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They were teaching heresy about the resurrection. And so there are clearly heretics in the New Testament that were not saved because Peter talks about some. He says they're destined for darkness. Those people were definitely not saved. But then you have other people that Paul talks about, and he talks about them as they're being disciplined. I've handed them over to Satan, which means I've kicked them out of the church. They're in the realm of, yes, they're no longer in the fellowship. And I'm doing this for remedial purposes to bring them back into the church. Hopefully they'll learn from their mistake. This is the same kind of language he uses for that man who was um, having a relationship with his stepmom. And he is also handed over to Satan. And But it says, yes, right. But it says that he does this to the destruction. Okay. It's not the exact same word used here as perish, but it's a very powerful word for the destruction of what? The flesh. So that his spirit will be saved. So basically, it seems to be that Paul is regarding this man. I would also argue Hymenaeus and Alexander that he's saying that I'm trying to cut this cancer out, to cut it off. So that way, even if his flesh perishes, his spirit will be saved. So what that means is even if these men were to not respond to this discipline, their their flesh would be destroyed. They would experience 
death. And it probably wouldn't be, you know, a nice death in your sleep. This would probably be a wasting away, just like the Corinthians experienced. They were ill, they were weak, then they died. I think of Saul. I think of Saul. Like Saul, after he sinned against God that second time, I mean, many times, but that second chief time where, you know, he didn't kill the Amalekites, he didn't kill Agag. When the Holy Spirit left him, he was depressed and it doesn't say an evil spirit possessed him. It says he was tormented. And I mean, he was constantly, I mean, this guy had this, yeah, I mean, he was absolutely mentally unstable. And, you know, you think, what if Saul would have repented? What if he would have repented? What if he would have turned back to God? I don't think that God would have said, okay, well then I'll give you your crown back. I think the consequences were there. It's sort, it's sort of like God said that to Solomon, like, listen, you've sinned against me. I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you in your lifetime, but I'm going to take it away in your son's lifetime. So I think that there would have been consequences for Saul, but I think that he at least would have lived his life without that depression and despair that he felt in those latter years. Um, the same thing can be said uh, about the people that James was writing to. He talks about how, you know, he doesn't say that if they're sick, it's necessarily a sin, but he does imply that it could be. And he says, if it is, and you're able to turn this person back to God and they confess their sin, you will save that man's soul is the word used there. Of course, soul refers to his whole person, his life, and that person won't die physically. Rather, they'll recover and they'll get up from their bed and they'll be able to go back to life because the reason they were sick in the first place is because they were experiencing God's discipline. So in some cases, that physical wasting away um, is discipline. In some cases, it's not, right? We're not there to judge that. But I've, I've often wondered in certain people's case if it was, you know, divine discipline. I mean, I, I love my mom and I know that she's with the Lord and I hope that she doesn't get offended that I use her as an example, but she probably wouldn't care. Now that she's with the Lord, you know, she sees things from a perfect perspective. But I think my mom was an example of that. I mean, you can ask Katie, like my mom wasted away physically. And, you know, and there were times where I thought she's turned back to God, you know, and she's doing better. Why is she still dealing with all this stuff? But, you know, then she'd fall off again. And, you know, we'd find the vodka in her closet and she'd been hiding and Lord knows how long she had been drinking again. And, abusing medications. And and so I wondered, I still wonder if maybe, you know, God imposed upon her that sort of divine discipline to turn her back to him. And that y'all, y'all that wasting in my mom's life lasted for years. And so it's not, yeah, for a a long time. So I don't think that necessarily it's always going to be like Ananias and Sapphire. And I think that's why the example is so powerful because it was one of those God's making a statement. And, you know, he doesn't always make statements like that. Okay. Sometimes, you know, he's patient. I was teaching the other day about Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And sometimes whenever they complain, what did he do? He gave them the manna. They were hungry. He gave it to them. They were complaining about water. He gave it to them. One time they said, this is worthless food. He sent fiery serpents among them. You know, so sometimes God reacts a little bit more strongly. And that's because he's got his reasons. Um, I know, man. Whew. I explained that to my students. I said, man, according to the Bible, it said it was coming out of their nose. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah. And it says they ate so much that they died from it. 
And uh, there was a plague that struck the people. And he's like, they're like, oh, man, that's pretty tough. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, they tested God's patience a lot here. You know, but it also, it goes back to what we talked about on Sunday. You know, this idea of accountability, it really does have a lot of factors involved. And one of those factors is the amount of grace that you receive. If you have all these privileges and all these blessings and you know better, God really will hold you accountable for that. So, you know, they have just entered this age of grace. They don't have to keep all of these laws anymore now. Um, they're not going to be punished if they if they mess up on something that may be perceived as small to us, picking up sticks on the Sabbath. They're not going to be executed for that, right? So God is definitely just extending his arms. He's pouring out the spirit. I mean, there's tons of stuff happening. People are being healed. They're speaking in tongues. This is one of those times in history where no one has been more accountable than that first generation. And then you have someone like Ananias and Sapphira. They come in here and, and they, they sin in an obvious way. They don't confess it. They cover it up. And so I think that they were in a unique position. Uh, I've been toying with this idea for a while, and this is one of those things that you know, I, I don't know. But I've always wondered, why don't we see more of this discipline happen today? Because obviously when you're reading Paul and James and the story about Ananias and Sapphira, there were people that were struck down and killed back then. And of course, there's two reasons why we probably wouldn't be able to identify today. One, we don't have apostles around. The apostles were able to say, hey, you know these guys that are getting sick and they're dying? Well, they're dying because of their sin. Like they could say that, right? I mean, we can't do that. So there's that. But it's also... Even those Gentiles that weren't Jewish here that, that Paul is writing to at Corinth, they were also exposed to signs that we've never seen in our life. And so they're living again in a unique time. They have apostles as their preachers. I'm not that at all. Okay. I've never heard an apostle. I would love to sit down with a Peter or a Paul and ask tons of questions, <laughs> yeah, or even you know, a or, or even a Philip or, or an eyewitness, right? I mean, right. they had people like that. Okay. Accountability meter, you're going up. All right. They got signs and wonders. Accountability is going up even more. So since we don't have those things today, I do believe that God does discipline in that way in, in some cases, but I think that he's probably super patient given the fact that we don't have the same amount of uh, revelation that they had. I, I think that God takes that into consideration. Um, but anyways, that's, that's one of, one of those subjects that we're not hundred percent clear on, but I think that, you know, based on some scriptural principles, we can make some educated guesses, but anyways, wrapping it up about Simon, there's one passage I want to read to y'all and I hope I'm not opening up a can because I think this is meant to be illustrative. Uh, we don't really have to dig deep into this, but it's a related passage. When I'm reading these commentaries, this is a passage they'll reference a lot. So I think it's worth looking at. But in John chapter 2, if you'll turn there and you'll look at verse number 23, that's where we're going to start reading. But in John 2 for 23, it says that Jesus at the Passover went up to Jerusalem. This is the first Passover festival that Jesus attended. His ministry was three and a half years. Yeah. So this is that first Passover Okay, it's the beginning of his ministry. And when he's up at the temple, he teaches. And we don't really have a whole lot of that teaching. He does say that he's going to, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He says that in verse 19. So he's saying after he overturns the tables and he drives the people out with a whip of cords, that really struck me, guys. 
I did not believe that was in the Bible. Like I knew the overturning the tables was, but driving them out with a whip of cords, I was like, man. Yeah, I think he was a little yeah, upset. I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of right up there with, with Nehemiah pulling and yanking their hair and smacking them around. And Woo! I mean, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I read that. I didn't know that that was in the Bible, y'all. I was like, really? someone told me. No, I knew that he overturned the tables, but I, I'd never. How many times you can we post that Facebook meme? The way, well, now I'm, <laughs> I, I'm talking about in college is when a student came up to me and said, yeah, Jesus smacked him with a whip of cords. And I was like, that's not in the Bible. He's like, absolutely it is. And he showed me. And I'm like, wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, well, Jesus does have that right. Um, but anyways, he does say that there's this sign. What authority do you have to do things like this, Jesus? Destroy this temple and three days I'll raise it up. The ultimate proof of Jesus' authority is his resurrection. But look at what happens in verse 23. It says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now Jesus never did miracles without attending those signs with preaching. All throughout John, when he performs a sign, he does a sermon along with it. Okay, Whenever he provides the bread loaves, he talks about the bread of life. Whenever he, um, um, whenever he brings Lazarus back from the dead, I mean, there's this whole conversation between him and Martha. So Jesus always has something to say when he performs these miracles. So we can assume that he's presenting himself as the one who gives everlasting life. Um, we already have evidence of that in John chapter 1. John has been pointing to Jesus. This is the Lamb of God. Uh, Nathaniel said, you're the son of God. You're the, the king of the Jews. I mean, there's already word going around that Jesus is the one. So when Jesus is performing these miracles, many people believe that he was the one. Uh, and, and apparently these people believed in the fullest sense of belief because in John 1:12 it says this, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And the exact same expression is used here. It's not any different. So these people were true believers. But it says in verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. So they believed in him, but he did not entrust himself to them. Now, what does that mean? A lot of people think, well, they believed in him, but he didn't give them eternal life. But wait a second. You just said, John, in chapter one, that those who believed, that's it. All they had to do is believe they received everlasting life. So why wouldn't he give them that? Well, it never says that he withheld eternal life. It says he did not commit himself to them. Now, Jesus spent three and a half years with these 12 men, and he spent more time with them than he did with anybody else. There was another 70 disciples or 72 that he yeah. spent time with, the intimate time that other people didn't have access to. So Jesus did not commit himself to these people because it says in verse number 23, he knew. He knew what was in man. He knew these people were not completely committed to him yet. They believed, but they weren't quite willing to be outspoken about their faith. Now, why? Well, if you go to John chapter three, we have a story about Nicodemus. I don't know if he was a believer before that. My opinion is he was probably a believer at some point during that conversation. He does say, we believe you're, you're sent from God. That seems to fall short of saying that he's the Christ. But I have no doubt that by the end of that conversation, he was walking away convinced that Jesus was the one. And he, but he still held that in, right? Yeah. All throughout, even at the very last, at the very end of the gospel, when the Pharisees are all getting together and they're accusing Jesus, um, 
He says we should hear this guy out. We shouldn't accuse him. But he doesn't actually say, well, if y'all got something against him, you got something against me because I believe in him. I'm one of the, I'm one of those who believe in him. He doesn't do that. And it says three times when it talks about Nicodemus, he was the one that appeared at night. He was the one that appeared at night. He was the one that appeared at night. He's the secret believer. Now, it says in John 12, I think it's 42, it says it wasn't just uh, Nicodemus, there were others. In uh, John 12, 42, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That is probably the same situation as what we have here in John chapter 2. You have these people, they see the miracles. They're convinced of this power. When he's turning over those tables, they see his authority and they believe in his name. Okay, They believed he's the Christ. And they even, I, I believe, since belief in John's gospel is belief for eternal life, these were people that were convinced, like, he's my savior. He's the one that's come to take away my sins. But, but they were too scared to say it out loud because saying it out loud would have put them in the crosshairs because Jesus has already made people mad. When he turned those tables over, the Jews were indignant. They said, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? They're mad that Jesus is doing this. So there were two groups there. There were the people who were, or sorry, we'll say three groups. There was the disciples who they aligned with Jesus. Okay. You had the other group that believed in Jesus, was too scared to align with him. And then you had the people who didn't believe and they didn't align with Jesus at all. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that we see that same thing today. We see the exact same thing today. So I think that these people um, later on, I have no yeah, doubts. More in a few years. I have no doubts that these people later on, um, like Nicodemus, I think that they made it clear that they were believers. But at this point, they are very weak in their faith, but it does say they believed. And so if it says they believed, and if the whole purpose of the gospel of John is to say that those who believe are saved, then I have no doubt these people were saved. And what's interesting is if you say, oh, these people just followed Jesus or, or they, they, they confessed Jesus because of the signs. Guess what? That was the point. Judas did too. This is where I'm going with this. Judas did too. I have no doubt that Judas believed that Jesus was a man of power and maybe even a Messiah in some sense of the term. But it clearly says in John, he did not believe. He had never believed. So according to John, believe is something that Judas fell short of, but these people had. So Judas may have thought this guy's the king. But I think that Judas was also a very worldly material person who didn't see past the power of Jesus politically. He thought Jesus would be a king. But the people that believed in Jesus when he performed the miracles and taught, those people were those who said, I have a sin problem. I want to know where I'm going when I die. This man says that he can guarantee where I'm going when I die. I believe that man. That's right. That's what they did. Judas thought that Jesus was coming to overthrow I, I think I think that he probably did it first. Yeah, I think that he probably towards the end of the ministry realized Jesus wasn't going to do that, and I think that's probably why he was trying to get out of it and make some money off of it too. But again, we don't we can't psychoanalyze him. There are some people that think that Judas was trying to push Jesus into a tough situation to force Jesus. Yeah, um, 
I think that that's more charitable than the Gospel of John portrays him. Um, I, I don't I don't see it as Judas is like Jesus. I'm rooting for you. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm betraying you, but I'm really on your side. I, I don't see Judas doing that. Uh, is, is it possible? Sure, it's possible. It's still a betrayal, nonetheless. Yeah. But I think it's more likely that Judas followed Jesus around because he genuinely believed he had power. He listen. Judas cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Right. So he knew that Jesus had power, but did Judas say, I am a sinner and this person is the one who's forgiving me of that sin and this person is, is granting me life and I need him because I can't be righteous on my own. That's not the faith that Judas had. Judas's faith was like the people in Matthew 7 where they said, haven't we cast out demons in your name? We prophesied in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. And it's because they didn't do the will of the Father. Well, what was the will of the Father? The will of the Father was to believe in Jesus. And it was to believe in Jesus not as just a man of power, not as a political ruler, but as the one who guarantees their eternal destiny. And, and that's, I think, Judas's problem. Judas was a money man. So it, was, it wasn't that he didn't have a belief in the supernatural, but the supernatural was a peripheral issue for him. What was really important in his life was the money the money and the, and the prestige that came from being associated and attached to the retinue of this king. While the other people who believe in Jesus, it's not that those things weren't important. I mean, even the disciples were like, Jesus, are you going to restore your kingdom now? They wanted the kingdom, right? They wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to see God restore the kingdom to the Jews. But they also saw past that to the main issue. And that's what John the Baptist came to prep him for, right? John came to prep him for that. He's like, you need to be ready to believe in this one that's coming after me because you're all sinners. You can't say, well, I'm a son of Abraham. You can't say that I'm righteous because no doubt in his sermons, he showed the law and exposed them to the law and its standard in Jesus. When his ministry was first kicked off the Sermon of the Mount, he says, this is what the law really is. Everybody by the end of those messages should have known we can't claim salvation. Okay, we don't have a right to it. And that's when Jesus would say, believe in me. These people in John chapter 2, they believed in him, but they didn't commit him or commit to him. And that's why Jesus didn't commit back to them. He's like, I'm not going to invest my time in you if you're not fully on board with me. So it wasn't that he didn't give them the free gift because they believed. Well, they believed he gives the free gift. That's, that's, the, that's, the, deal. that's the deal, right? But if you want to have what I have with my disciples... If you want me to invest in you, then you've got to invest in me. And that's awesome. It's an awesome teaching of discipleship that has honestly been thrown to the wayside because people conflate salvation and discipleship so much that they can't see the difference between the two. And that scares the death out of people because they think, I'm never going to be a perfect disciple. I mean, if you read this as, well, Jesus didn't give himself to them because they didn't believe the right way, you're always going to be wondering, well, have I believed the right way? Right. Have I believed enough? If belief in, is, is tied to works, well, has my faith manifested enough fruit before it can be classified as real faith? And so you're constantly looking at your works, which is the exact opposite of what this whole gospel is designed to do. It's not meant to have you looking at your works. It's meant to have you looking at Jesus and what he can offer you and guarantee for free. But uh, anyways, that's one of those passages. Whenever you're reading about Simon the sorcerer, they'll refer to John 2 and say he had that faith. It was a signed faith. And I'm like, 
Well, first off, the signs are a good thing. Like, I mean, the whole purpose of them is to bring people to faith. But, you know, it says he believed just as the other Samaritans did. And if they were real believers, as we know they were, then we shouldn't deny that he was also a genuinely um, believing individual who was saved. So I think that Simon's in heaven. I could be wrong, you know, but I, I think that based that on... <laughs> oh man, that that I can imagine that would um, be a funny inside joke. Hey Simon, <laughs> do some tricks, man. No, don't do that anymore. <laughs> no more, guys. <laughs> but um, anyways, um, if you're listening to this podcast, if you have any questions, go to our Facebook page, um, Ark of Hope Baptist Church, and we'd be happy to answer your questions about it. But God bless and good night. <laughs>